This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Let's start with your background. Uh, so you were a Marine, you served time in Iraq, and then you were upgraded to a weapons inspector for the United Nations. Is that more or less correct? Well, except for the upgrade part, you can never upgrade from being a U.S. Marine. That is the <laughs> pinnacle. Um, but uh, no, I was a, um, a, a Marine uh, Marine Corps intelligence officer. I, um, I specialized in, uh, in Russian affairs. Uh, before I went to Iraq, I had two experiences that shaped uh, why I was sent to Iraq. Um, one was in 1988 when I uh, was one of the first members to join an organization called the On-Site Inspection Agency uh, that was created in the aftermath of the signing of the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty by Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev. And um, I was actually the first inspector on the ground in the Soviet Union to implement that treaty. Um, I had been sent in 14 days early as a part of an advance party. And when the, while the rest of the inspectors were flying in, when the clock ticked over on midnight, I became an inspector, which made I was the first one. But uh, I did that for two years in, uh, in the former Soviet Union. And basically, before that happened, um, there had never been something called on-site inspections. We literally wrote the book for on-site inspections. And so I became somewhat of an expert on on-site inspections, not because I was smarter than anybody else, but one of the definitions of an expert is, you know, you can go to school, get a PhD and all that kind of stuff, or you can be the first person to do it. And I was the first person to do it, which made me by default, the expert. Uh, so, uh, but I finished that job, went back to the Marine Corps right in time for uh, the Gulf War. And I ended up um, getting uh, stationed uh, in Central Command Headquarters in Saudi Arabia with uh, General Norman Schwarzkopf. And during the war, I, um, I got involved in the counter-scud hunt, uh, hunting down Iraqi scud missiles. And um, I had what they call a good war, meaning I didn't get killed and I did a good job. Um, and I came out of the war with a deeper understanding of the problem of Iraqi scuds. So later on, um, in the summer of 1991, when I was called by the United Nations, if I wanted to come and uh, join them uh, for the purpose of creating an intelligence organization, there were three things on my side. One, I was an experienced intelligence officer. I had um, a lot of experience at the highest levels uh, of doing intelligence, intelligence management. Two, um, I wrote the book on on-site inspections, and that's what they were doing in Iraq. And uh, three, I had firsthand experience with Iraqi Scud missiles, so that's what got me into the uh, into the United Nations was that combination. I did that job for seven years. But you said you had a, a few Damascus moments of sorts. Well, Damascus moments, yeah, I guess there you go, biblical reference. Yeah, uh, you know that is basically um, the experience of Paul. Um, as he's going to Damascus uh, to hunt down Christians and kill them. And um, he, bright light, Jesus came down and converted him. Um, so I had a couple of Damascus moments on the way. Uh, first and foremost, we go back to my Marine Corps experience. You know, I joined the Marine Corps. I was a child of the Cold War. My dad was a career Air Force officer, and I, uh, I was raised uh, in that environment. And uh, you know, the last two places I went to high school were Ankara, Turkey, and Kaiserslautern, in Germany, both on the front lines in the Cold War. West Germany at that time was home to 300,000 American soldiers who were, uh, you know, on a hair-trigger alert to fight a Soviet invader. And every aspect of my childhood was filled with tanks in the fields, aircraft flying over, 
everybody getting ready for war. I lived next door to a nuclear weapons storage facility. And if there was a war, it was going up first. So sometimes when there was tension and I went to school, we literally didn't know if there was going to be a home to come home to because that's just the reality we lived in. And rather than run away from it, I embraced it and said, you know, because back then we can laugh about it today, but kill a commie for mommy was a real thing. And better dead than red was a real sentiment. And I joined the military uh, out of high school for the sole purpose of getting to the full to gap. So I could be on the front line when those commie bastards came over. I was going to kill a commie for mommy. I was going to protect my country, protect my way of life. And I joined the military to do just that. Ended up transitioning to the Marine Corps because I just wanted to be with a higher class of killer, uh, better trained, better prepared. Um, and I spent two and a half years in the deserts of 29 Palms, California, training to kill Russians. That was my sole focus. My field artillery battalion was a nuclear-capable field artillery battalion, and all we did is to train how to close with and destroy the enemy through firepower maneuver. Um, so when I got selected to be a weapons inspector in the Soviet Union, this was sort of a shock. I was supposed to go to a special operations-capable Marine unit. Uh, that's where I wanted to go because... You can't kill people unless you're in the unit that's going to be on the tip of the spear. Instead, they said, we're going to send you to Russia uh, where you're going to, I guess, what, hug them to death? Uh, you know, this is peace and all this stuff. You know, we did. I, I, I'm being facetious here. I'm a professional. <laughs> I was given, uh, given orders, and the orders were to implement the treaty, and uh, that's what we did. But it was a very, very surreal environment to for somebody with my background to step off that airplane in Moscow in the Soviet Union, in the den of the beast, and then fly to a missile factory that produced missiles, each one of which had an American city as its target. And I'm working with the engineers producing this missile. Now they're working with a guy who was training to kill them. And we now have to cooperate together <laughs> to make this treaty work. And it's a lot of dancing around early on as you're sitting there sussing each other out. But, um, on New Year's Eve, 1987-88, December 31st, 1987, I was invited, or 88, I was invited to the home of one of these engineers. And it was one of those Damascus moments where, you know, he invited me in together with some other inspectors. He led us into his home. We met his family. We met his neighbors. And this giant realization came in. These aren't bad people. These are good people. This is a father with a wife. This is a family with children. They have neighbors who are friendly. They laugh. They cry. They tell bad jokes. They do everything we do. Um, and, and they just want to live. And that's when I realized I didn't want to kill these people anymore. I actually liked them. And I was like, this treaty is so important. Up until then, it was a, a job. After that, it became a mission. It became a mission to make nuclear disarmament. A reality. I don't think people understand the importance of what we did. We eliminated an entire category of nuclear weapons that were on the front lines of any potential nuclear conflict. If we hadn't eliminated, eliminated them, there probably would have been a nuclear war. That's how dangerous the situation was. So I always joke, and I'll say this to, to your South African audience, if you ever meet me, shake my hand, thank me, and buy me a beer. Because if it weren't for me and the other inspectors, you wouldn't be alive today because we saved the world by getting rid of these weapons. And I'm only half joking about that because it was a really dangerous situation. Um, I hope the beer is good in South Africa. But it, it was a really dangerous situation. Very good. And we overcame it. But that was that was one of my uh, you know Damascus moments. The other one mm. came, you know, I joined the Marine Corps to um, kill Russians. It was as simple as that. And when I left that job in the summer of 1990. 
Um, I didn't want to be in the Marine Corps anymore because there was just no reason. Um, I, I joined to kill Russians. And now we were at peace. And I'm like, why don't I jump on the peace bandwagon here? Why don't I get on that wagon and ride that baby? So I resigned from the Marine Corps. And oh, I was, I was getting ready to resign from the Marine Corps. But then Saddam Hussein invades um, Kuwait. And now I'm stuck in November. I could have left the Marine Corps in November of 1990. I had the papers. I could have walked. But, I, you know, and I didn't support the war in Iraq. I'm looking at it going, I actually briefed the, the general, General Caulfield, uh, who was my commander at the time, when he brought me in. Uh, and, and he said, what do you think about this? And I said, we're fighting the wrong Arabs. I said, the Iraqis are actually the good guys here. Uh, the Kuwaitis are stealing their oil. The Iraqis work for themselves. The Saudis bring in all this foreign labor. We're on the wrong side here. But, you know, you got to do what you got to do. Your, your government makes that choice, not me. But I couldn't leave the Marine Corps when it was getting ready to go to war. That would be the biggest disgrace in my life. So I went to the commandant and I asked, I volunteered to stay in. I said, please don't dishonor me by letting me go before we go to war. I don't care what you do with me. If you make me the ping pong ball accounting officer in Alaska, if that frees up a Marine to go to war, then I'm being of use to the thing. He said, no, no, we'll, we'll keep you, but we're sending you to war. Uh, and so I went to war. Um, Again, it wasn't a war that I was thrilled about going to, but it was a war nonetheless, and you do your job. Um, I was involved in scud hunting, and I remember uh, I had volunteered for this uh, one mission. It's actually, it's a mission I designed uh, to go behind Iraqi lines to uh, investigate um, what we called scud kill sites, where the U.S. Air Force claimed to have killed a scud missile. But there were only 19 mobile launchers in the Iraqi inventory when the war started. And by week two, we had killed 64. Now, I'm just a simple Marine. I'm not the greatest mathematician in the world, but 19 and 64 don't square. So it means we're killing a lot of things that aren't uh, Iraqi scuds. So I wanted to find out what it was we were killing so I could better train the Air Force to discern between real scuds and fake scuds. But you can only do that by getting on the ground and looking at the uh, device. So we, we trained for this. It was actually a SEAL team that I was training with. They, uh, they had these uh, fast attack vehicles, these doom buggies. So you're going on a helicopter, you'd jump off from like the rap patrol and they take you down to the site. You jump out, chainsaw, cut things up, take pictures, take videotape and get back on. And we were getting ready to go and the mission got canceled. And um, it was sort of a, it was a disappointment at time because you sort of get psyched up for this thing. So, but I'm laying there and I had this Australian guy uh, who would, uh, he was my liaison to the, the special forces guys. And uh, we're laying out there afterwards, sort of ruminating and we're looking up at the stars you know, as men are wont to do at night when you're, you're wondering, why am I not in Western Iraq right now getting killed? You know, why am I so fortunate to be here and looking up at the stars? But we just started talking and we started just sort of projecting ourselves out to the stars. And then looking back, we projected out to the moon and looked back. And we talked about what it would have been like to be um, one of those astronauts, you know, the first American, you know, the astronauts that went out there and they got to the moon and they looked back. And there's this uh, effect that overcomes them. And I can't remember the exact name of it right now, but basically you're looking back in awe because you realize how small the world is. And so we sort of were sitting there in the desert, focused on this mission, this raid right over the border, you know, and all that stuff. And then you pull yourself back a little bit and you see it's a larger region and suddenly that raid doesn't seem that important anymore. There's bigger stuff. And you pull back even more, it's a world and you realize how insignificant this raid really is. And then you pull it back to the moon and you realize 
how fragile the world is and how stupid we are for doing what we're doing, how absolutely dumb and insignificant this is. There's got to be a better way to resolve the world's problems than having men killing men. I mean, that was the sort of the realization. We're just both going, war sucks. It really sucks. And that was one of those those moments, too, that I realized that war sucked. That was a dramatic moment. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But you're talking now a, a lot about what sounds like American exceptionalism, but you've now be, you've swung quite a lot now. You've become very, very critical of that exact idea. Uh, yeah, look, I was raised during the Cold War when America was an exceptional nation. You can't deny it. You can't deny it. We were the most powerful nation in the world, and we were confronting. We were literally in a struggle of good versus evil. Um, and don't condemn me for buying into that narrative. Everybody else bought into it as well because um, it was a reality. Um, and I don't condemn America for being in that position. Um, you could be critical of Vietnam. You could be critical of Korea. You could be critical of South Africa. You could be critical of Chile. You could be critical of everything we did. But we were in a position where we're sort of thrust into this, some, some would say it's self-induced problem after the Second World War, but it was a real problem. And the Gulf War was sort of an initial test of the post-Cold War a reality. You know, a lot of people condemn the Gulf War with cause, with cause. But let's reflect on it for a minute. minute. The Gulf War happened because a Chapter 7 resolution was passed by the Security Council of the United Nations. That meant that all five permanent members of the Security Council had to vote in favor of it. That meant that China and the Soviet Union had to vote in favor of it. Why did they vote in favor of it? Because it was the right thing to do. Because we were coming to the defense of Kuwait, which was invaded by Iraq. Article 51 required this. We needed an Article 7 resolution to, to get the forces together, and we did it. So legally, we went through the right steps. Maybe it was in the wrong cause. Who knows? I mean, you, again, history will be the judge. But at that point in time, we're not really talking about American exceptionalism anymore, are we? We're talking about America going to the international body and building a world coalition to resolve a problem that was manifest to the world. So we're making this transition. And it was sort of cool to be part of that transition, to be part of a global effort however misplaced it might have been. It's still a global effort. It's not American unilateralism. You can definitely say that, even though we were the largest member of the coalition. The problem comes not with what George Herbert Walker Bush did, but what William Jefferson Clinton did. You see, William Jefferson Clinton inherited this brave new world, a world where the United States could have turned to the United Nations and said, we seek to empower you. We seek to make you relevant. We seek to transfer some of this exceptional power and authority that we have maintained since the Second World to the international body, which is what was intended at the end of the Second World War. And we failed. For the next eight years of Clinton administration, we became, as Madeleine Albright, his Secretary of State, like to say, we became not just the exceptional nation, but according to her, we are the indispensable nation. The world can't live without us. We have to be involved in everybody's problems. And that's where we went wrong. Then 9-11 came. Then George Bush, George W. Bush came. The illegal invasion of Iraq came. Barack Obama came, who was as bad as George Bush when it came to American exceptionalism. And today we live in a world where 
American exceptionalism is no longer tolerated. You know, the world grew up. The world grew up. South Africa is a member of BRICS now. Mm. You know? I mean, let's. So, uh, Africa is a continent of relevance now. It's mm. a continent coming into its own. People can't ignore Africa, can't ignore the economic potential, can't ignore the political reality of Africa. That wasn't happening back in the day, but now it is. And the United States is being told by the world that you don't get to dictate outcomes anymore. And there's a struggle right now. So, yeah, I grew up under the air of American exceptionalism. And believe it or not, I believe in exceptional Americans, meaning, don't get me wrong here, but meaning that because we have been so privileged and because we have had we have wealth, because we have education, uh, because we have a, a, a system of governance that uh, doesn't at least at least didn't used to, but you know that, that works so that you can produce Americans who are able to function competently at the international level. I don't believe in American isolationism. Yeah. I don't believe that America should go hide. I believe that Americans can be exceptional as citizens, as part of a team, to go forward mm. and work together with the team. You know, when I was with the United Nations and I led weapons inspection teams into Iraq, these were multinational teams. I'd have teams of 75, 150 guys from around the world and gals from around the world. And I had to make them come together. Do you think when I gather them in the room to brief that I raised the American flag and said, now we will all sing the Star Spangled Banner at attention? No, I raised the UN flag and I talked about the mandate of Security Council Resolution 687. And it's our job to overcome the prejudices of our respective governments and come together as a true global team in furtherance of the will of the international community. And I got them all to believe it, at least for a moment. And we went into Iraq and we did the job as an international organization. And it was a very difficult job, one of the most difficult jobs in the world. And we did it successfully. So I believe that America can play a leadership role in that kind of environment. Plus, it's not just a leadership role, because to be a good leader, you have to be a good follower. Yeah. You have to be willing to follow. So that means that sometimes you ain't the team commander. Sometimes the team commander might be from South Africa or from France or from you know Brazil. It doesn't matter. We're a team, a United Nations team. And I believe... We, we have thrown that potential away, and America has to get back to where we can work together with the world as an equal. This day, this notion that America gets to dictate outcomes, that America is the exceptional nation, that we are the nation that the world cannot live without, the indispensable, is ludicrous. We are an important nation. We are a powerful nation. We cannot be ignored, but just because we can't be ignored doesn't mean that mm. you have to obey us. We are not your masters. You are not our servants. But I mean, the last few years have 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 shown now some serious serious holes, uh, particularly with with your current um, administration. I mean, well, first of all, Ukraine is a, you know, there's the Beauty and the Beast. I don't know if you've seen that musical, but it's a tale as old as time. You know, I mean, you don't begin uh, on February twenty fourth, twenty twenty two. It certainly doesn't begin there. Everybody would like it to begin there because that's convenient to the narrative being promulgated by the United States, by NATO, by Europe. The evil Russians invaded uh, defenseless, helpless Ukraine. Uh, that ignores that from the, the, a coup d'etat that took place in 2014 in Maidan, backed by the CIA and the European Union to evict a legally elected, constitutionally mandated president, Viktor Yanukovych, and replace him with these 
rebels, these Ukrainian nationalists, these extremists. When I say Ukrainian nationalists, I don't mean nationalism like you read in the act. I'm talking about virulent nationalism based upon racism, uh, based upon uh, an ideology of banderism that is closely linked and allied with Nazi Germany's ally. In fact, is Stepan Bandera, the founder of the banderist ideology of modern-day uh, Ukrainian nationalism, was an ally of Adolf Hitler. His forces participated in the slaughter of tens of thousands of Jews, hundreds of thousands of Poles, hundreds of thousands of Russians. Um, so in 2014, they become empowered by us. They get involved in a shooting match with ethnic Russians because the ethnic Russians don't want to lose their ethnic identity because these new nationalists banned Russian language, banned everything about Russia. So they stood up and they fought. The Russian government interceded on their behalf. There's a short war. Ukraine loses. A lot of people don't realize that in 2014. Ukraine lost. The Russian army had the Ukrainian army surrounded in northern Donetsk and was getting ready to slaughter 24,000 Ukrainian soldiers when... The Germans and the French said, please stop, please stop. And Putin's like, why? Because we believe in peace. And Putin went, well, they're the ones killing ethnic Russians. You weren't screaming peace when they're killing ethnic Russians. But there will be peace now, we promise. And Putin said, okay, I buy into peace. And the Minsk Accords came into being. The Minsk Accords were brokered by what's called the Normandy format, the French and the Germans. Uh, Francois Hollande was the president at the time. Angela Merkel was the was the chancellor. And they said, we want this deal where in exchange for the Ukrainian government making constitutional changes that protect the identity of the Russians, their cultural heritage, their linguistic uh, heritage, heritage, et cetera, uh, that the borders of Ukraine will be respected, meaning that all these territories that said we don't, you know, we're rebelling, they'll come back, they'll be part of Ukraine territorial integrity. And geez, Russia was like, okay, we'll do that. But it turned out it was all a lie, you see, all a lie. The French, the British, the Americans, the Germans, the whole world, all NATO, they were just buying time, building a rebuilding a Ukrainian army in the image of NATO, part of a plan to bring Ukraine into NATO. Now let's talk about that plan for a little bit. Because first of all, I just want to highlight that from 2014 to 2022, uh, NATO actively was involved in the training of tens of thousands of Ukrainian soldiers to NATO standard, equipping them, training them, getting ready for one purpose. And that purpose is best put forward by a slide put forward by the United States Army that says every 55 days, we train a Ukrainian battalion to NATO standards here at the base in Western Ukraine. And then an arrow goes over to the Donbass so they can fight and kill Russians here. That's the mission that America said in 2015. And we did it up until 2022. It wasn't peace. It wasn't harmony. It was deliberately buying time so the Ukrainians could build an army capable of killing Russians. Now, was this a predictable outcome? Now we go to 2008. Let's back up a little bit more. 2008, when in February 2008, William Burns, a name that might be familiar, especially to your intelligence service, because he's the head of the CIA today. But in 2008, he was the U.S. ambassador to Russia. And he wrote a memorandum back to the National Security Council and the president and the, and the secretary of state said, the name of the memorandum was Nyet means Nyet, no means no. Well, what does he mean, no means no? What's he talking about? The Russians said Ukraine cannot join NATO. Nyet means Nyet. There will be consequences. This is a red line. Now, he wrote this in early 2008, and part of his memorandum said that if we go forward and invite Ukraine in, we will set in motion events that will culminate 
with a Russian military invasion of Ukraine, and Ukraine will probably lose to Crimea and the Donbass. In 2008, he wrote this cause and effect relationship. You think the light would have gone off in these people's head? But they did it anyways. In late 2008, they invited Ukraine to join, knowing, knowing that there would be a war. So that puts into perspective the events of 2014. We threw out Viktor Yanukovych for the purpose of starting the path down a war which we didn't have to control through the Minsk Accords. And after the Minsk Accord, it took seven years to get the Ukrainian army built up to where they could do what they always said they wanted to do, take the Russians out of Donbass. Ah, but 2008, was that a thing? Did, did William Burns just come up with that on his own? No. See, NATO has been expanding since the moment the Berlin Wall came down. You know, when the Berlin Wall came down in 1989, the Russians, Soviets, were going, hey, um, we got a problem here, guys. You don't forget, I want everybody, time out, time out. There was a thing called World War II and a thing called Adolf Hitler, this guy, and we beat him. And we said, never again. And we we occupied Germany. Because remember, they were the defeated enemy. You guys do remember that, right? They used to be called Nazi Germany. And we have an occupation army here in East Germany. There is no peace treaty. And there is no agreement on what Germany is going to look like as a unified country. Because we hadn't been talking about it. Now you all are talking about a unified Germany. It's got us a little worried. Because we don't want to go to war against these warmongering, industrial Nazi wannabes again. So what are you going to do about it? And they said, oh, don't worry. We got this all managed. Everything should be cool. Uh, Was Germany going to become part of NATO? Well, yes, Germany will become part of NATO. But no NATO forces will move into East Germany. And there was a deal that NATO would not expand one inch eastward. One inch eastward. And the Soviets went, we can buy into that. We're out of here. And they took their boys and they took them home. And what did we do immediately? We expanded eastward. We lied. Why? Well, see, James Baker met with Edward Shevardnadze, who was the foreign minister uh, of the Soviet Union. James Baker, sorry. He was the, uh, the Secretary foreign... Secretary of State. Yes, Secretary of State. That's great. Secretary of State under George Herbert Walker Bush. And uh, he met with uh, Edward Shevardnadze, who was the foreign minister under Mikhail Gorbachev. And... Um, and he gave him assurances. He said, no, not one inch eastward, no NATO expansion. We got it. Then he came back to Washington, D.C., and he said, yeah, this is what I told Chevron. And they said, what? No, 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 Jimmy. You're wrong, Bow, because we want to leave all options open because we don't, we think the Soviet Union is going down. And when it goes down, we want to keep it down. We don't want to ever give them the chance to reemerge and rebuild. So we need to expand NATO to keep them down, expand into the Warsaw Pact, expand up to the borders, take away the different republics and weaken Russia, hopefully to get Russia to break up. That was the grand strategy. And that's the thing we have to understand is that we have been trying to use Ukraine as a leverage to break up Russia, to diminish Russia, since the end of the Soviet Union. So what happened on February 24th, 2022, didn't start that day. It started long before that. Yes, but I mean, if you follow CNN, uh, you would have thought that uh, Putin woke up in a bad mood and decided to invade Ukraine. Yes, well, apparently he is susceptible to migraines. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, if you get him on a bad day, he just randomly invades countries. You know, what's curious about that, though, is um, I think the scope and scale of the Russian invasion took everybody by surprise. And not the way you think I'm going to say it is, because I was one of the people 
that looked at it and said, Russia should roll over the Ukrainians. This should be over soon. Um, but then I looked at the number of troops they had, and I went, 200,000 troops? Ain't that many troops? Um, how do you occupy Ukraine? How do, I mean, it was all, but I'm like, no, but the Russians can swamp these guys. They can do it. And when the Russians first came in, I'm like, that's what they're doing. Rapid advancement, seizure of territory, et cetera. But then they stop outside of Kiev. And then they, they you know, they stop. Why? And no, nobody picked up on this until later. The Russians had been negotiating with the Ukrainians before the conflict, saying, we don't want a war. We don't want a war. We don't want a war. All we want to do is implement Minsk. But we need you to promise you're not going to join NATO. You got to, you can't join NATO. We'll accept anything, but not NATO. And the Ukrainians were like, stick it in your ear. So the Russians invaded, but the purpose was to get the Ukrainians back to the negotiating table. Six days after the Russians went in, the first negotiation took place in Gomel, Belarus. There were three successive negotiations that then transferred to Antalya, Turkey. And then there's going to be a final meeting in Istanbul on 1 April. In Antalya, they, they, they initialed an agreed treaty. And the treaty was amazing. What it said, the Russians said is, look, we will get out of all the lands we've occupied because we have no territorial ambition. Not Crimea. I'm sorry. You'll never get Crimea back. That's ours. Sorry. <laughs> but everything else, it's yours. Uh, the Donbass, well, they declared independence, so we can't change that. But what we'll agree to is that there will be an international referendum held under international auspices to let the people of Donbass, everyone, Russians, Ukrainians, decide where they want to go. Security guarantees will allow you to set up security guarantees anywhere you want. As long as it's not NATO, you can't join NATO. And the Ukrainians went, yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that. They initialed it. Well, then Boris Johnson flew in and told them to stick in their ear. But my point is, oh, and just as a show of good faith, the Russians said, you initialed it, get the boys out of Kiev. And they withdrew from Kiev. You know, there's this fiction that the Ukrainians kicked the Russians out of Kiev. No, they didn't. Russians left Kiev on their own as part of the agreement. They withdrew from Sumy, Cherniv. They got all the way down to Kharkov. In Kharkov area, they withdrew 50% of their forces back in anticipation of total withdrawal. Um, and then the Ukrainians betrayed them, betrayed the peace process. And then immediately after that, in May, the United States starts a new Lend-Lease, $45 billion worth of military aid. Just to put that in perspective, the total Russian military budget annually is $68 billion. So we're going to infuse Ukraine with $45 billion worth of equipment and training and everything. And we did that. We rebuilt the Ukrainian army that had been largely destroyed by the Russians. And then they carry out a counteroffensive, punching into an empty bag. They punched into Kharkov, where the Russians had already withdrawn, withdrawn 25, you know, 50% of their forces. And they rapidly conquered that. They took over the right bank of, uh, you know, of uh, Kherson region. Then the Russians solidified their defense lines at held. They ended up killing the majority of the Russian, of the Ukrainian troops and, and freezing that line there. But then the war changes and becomes sort of this war of attrition that we see today. The Russians mobilize. And today Russia's won the war. It's over. It's finished. Goodbye, Desvidanya Mama. It's all over but the killing. Ukraine has lost. NATO has lost. The West has lost. But, you know, the, the point is that Putin didn't start this to brutalize Ukraine. In fact, the terms that Putin, the irony is, if you take a look at what's happened today in, in Ukraine, they've lost 20% of their land forever. They're never getting it back. They're never getting Kherson, Zaporizhia, Donetsk, or Lugansk back. That's Novoya Russia. It's part of Russia. So sad. All of that would have belonged to Ukraine had they signed the agreement in April 1st, uh, 2022. All of it. So 
Why do people say that Vladimir Putin only wanted war? Vladimir Putin only wanted peace. And today he still only wants peace. But it's a mm. peace that will be dictated by Russia, not by the losing party. Russia didn't start this war. Ukraine started this war. NATO started this war. Russia's finishing the war on their terms. Now, there's a very strange parallel here uh, in terms of context. Uh, in the same way that there was a buildup to what happened when Russia went into Ukraine, there was also a context when Hamas went into Israel. Absolutely. Again, October 7th didn't just happen on October 7th. It, it wasn't, uh, what is Hamas up to? Um, you know, let's go to 1948 and the creation of the Israeli state and something called the Nakba or the, uh, the catastrophe where um, uh, Israeli Zionists um, butchered thousands of Palestinians and drove 750,000 out of their homes, their villages that they had every legal right to be in, drove them out because they wanted Eretz Israel, greater Israel, free of Pal the taint of Palestinians. The majority of those Palestinians were sent into this place called Gaza, the Gaza Strip, uh, originally under Egyptian uh, control, later occupied by Israel, and then turned into a concentration camp by Israel. Uh, everybody's like, I mean, I, I love it when the Israelis are like, uh, in 2005, we withdrew from Gaza. Yeah, you withdrew the settlements from Gaza. And Gaza was governing by Hamas. Yeah, that, that happened too. But you guys wanted that to happen, by the way. You funded Hamas and made it happen. Benjamin and Yahoo's brainchild and all that stuff. But, and there's like, so we're not responsible. Then why do you have... If you, if you go to the northern tip of Gaza, there's a crossing there. And at the crossing next to that, they have this, this giant military encampment. And in there is what they call the civil authority. The civil authority, nothing happens inside Gaza. Nothing happens inside Gaza unless the civil authority approves it. The civil authority approves everything that goes in. The lists have to go in and the lists, are, the, the application. Nobody knows about this. Israel's like, we have nothing to do. With, you have everything to do with Gaza. It's a concentration camp. That's like the Nazis telling the inmates at Auschwitz, we got nothing to do with Auschwitz. It's the capos that are causing the problem. You know, those collaborators inside, they're the ones getting you up in the morning. They're the ones sending you to work. Don't blame the Nazis. We're just the guards around the wall. They're going to execute you all. The Israelis are like, oh, we have not. No, Israel's been running an open-air concentration camp for decades. And it's a, another thing. There's a couple of things that have, you know people are starting to learn about. How many people knew that Israel had taken 10,000 Palestinians prisoner and were holding them in jails under horrific conditions before uh, October 7th? And of those 10,000, thousands are women. Hundreds are children. I know there's people out there that are saying, those dirty Hamas bastards, they kidnapped Israeli children. Why would they do that? Well, probably because Israel's holding about 136 Palestinian children prisoner. Many of them are boys about the age of 10 who had their arms broken by the Israelis for the simple crime of throwing a rock against a tank that shouldn't have been in the refugee camp to begin with. But they broke their arms. You know what they do to the women? I don't mean to be too graphic here. They rape them. Why do they rape them? Well, because Palestinian women, most Muslim women, operate on a system of honor. You know, the Islam, you can you can be critical of Islam, but the hijab, that's between that's a dress thing. Not my business. I'm a Christian. I don't care. That's but the, from a Muslim societal standpoint, women, yes, they might have clothing restrictions, but they're treated with respect and dignity and honor. And so what the Israelis do is they rape these women and they film it. 
And then they hold that videotape and they say, we'll release this to your family. And you know what your family will do to you if they find out you were raped by 10 Israeli soldiers. Uh, so uh, your job now is to report back to us. Your job is to become a source. We need to know when your brother does something or this or the video. And this is done systemically. This is official policy of the shit bet. How many people knew that? How many people knew about? And if you knew about it, why the hell didn't you speak out about it? Because it's one of the greatest war crimes ever. A state using rape as a torture of you know, influencing a population. It's a war crime, a literal war crime. It happens every day and nobody said a damn thing. Nobody talked about the children in prison, the abuses they take, the abuses the women take, the ongoing torture of the other thousands of political prisoners held by the Israelis. Nobody talked about that. That was an ongoing reality up to October 7th. The Palestinian issue of statehood. You know, Hamas is a political party. Hamas was created uh, in the 1980s to oppose um, the, the notion of a two-state solution that people were negotiating for a two-state solution. They said there can be no Israel. Very extreme position, from the river to the sea. No no Jews. Well, it's funny, but you know what came before the Hamas from the river to the sea? The Likud parties from the river to the sea. The original founding document of Likud party is from the river to the sea. There will be no Palestinians. And so we have two competing visions. One that's, Hamas. Uh, sorry, that's, that's Netanyahu's party. Absolutely. And Netanyahu believes in this. From the river to the sea, not a Palestinian to be seen. Come on, man. It's there. It's what the Israelis say. But God, if a if a pro-Palestinian person says that, you're anti-Semitic. Then what the hell is an Israeli who chants it, who believes it, who implements it? What are they? I don't know. Pretty bad. So you've got these competing ideologies that are incompatible. But Hamas is allowed to transition is actually encouraged to transition by the Israelis, by the way, into a political party. Why? Because the Israelis don't want a two-state solution. Please understand that. The two-state solution died with Yitzhak Rabin, former prime minister who was responsible for Oslo 1 and Oslo 2, was assassinated by a right-wing Israeli uh, fanatic who was loyal to Benjamin Netanyahu. He was assassinated in 1995. Benjamin Netanyahu had sat there and said nothing at rallies when people linked uh, Rabin to a Nazi when rabbis, far-right rabbis, quoted the Talmud and said he should be killed because he betrayed Israel. So these fanatic right-wing Orthodox Jews went, a rabbi told us we should kill this man. And so they killed him. And when he was captured by the police, he said, my rabbi told me to do it. This is a loyal supporter of Benjamin Netanyahu. This is the mindset of the supporters of Benjamin Netanyahu, where they're willing to commit murder of their own to promote the vision of a greater ersatz Israel. Anyway, so Hamas is supported. Benjamin Netanyahu actually facilitates the transfer of funding to create Hamas as a political party. The goal was to split the Palestinian Liberation Organization, to split the Palestinian Authority, because they didn't. the Israelis didn't want to deal with a unified Palestinian position on the issue of statehood because there might become a state. So they needed to divide it, split it up. So they created Hamas. There were elections in 2006. Hamas won. <laughs> Who would have thunk it? Hamas won. And they won the majority of the votes in the legislature. That They weren't allowed to run for the presidency because that's a pure position. Only a Palestinian Liberation Organization member can be a member of the presidency. Um, but they won the legislature. And so now Israel promotes a civil war between Hamas and Fatah. And in 2006-2007, there was a civil war. It splits the uh, Palestinian community. Gaza becomes a purely Hamas bastion. The West Bank becomes purely a Fatah Bastion. And now the Israelis have won. You see, they've split the Palestinian uh, population. And now what happens because of the split, the issue of Palestinian statehood gradually disappears. The Abrams Accord signed in September of 2020 uh, is a series of um, 
separate accords, but mutually supporting between Israel and other nations, Israel and the United Arab Emirates, Israel and Bahrain, where they seek to normalize relations. Israel was currently negotiating or was before October 7th, one with Saudi Arabia, normalization of relations. Now, a key aspect to the Abrams Accord is that these Arab nations needed to have political cover about a Palestinian state. So the Abrams Accord creates the notion of a Palestinian state that is so repulsive, so rejected by all Palestinians that it would never be implemented, but the Arabs signed on to it. They said, okay, we'll buy into this peace plan, which means there was never going to be a Palestinian state, never going to be. Well, guess what? Because of what the Hamas did on October 7th, there's a gathering right now in Saudi Arabia of all the Islamic states, and they're all talking about a Palestinian state. The United States government is saying it's our number one policy objective now to get a two-state solution, a Palestinian state. That would never have happened if it weren't for what Hamas did on October 7th. And the last thing, besides the hostages, the state, Al-Aqsa Mosque. Look, I'm Christian. I don't pretend to be knowledgeable. Like I said, I'm a Marine. I'm a pretty simple guy. Um, but I do know enough about the Middle East and about the Islamic faith to know that Al-Aqsa Mosque is the third holiest shrine, third holiest place in all of Islam. It's a big deal. It's the you know Dome of the Rock. And um, the Israelis have been desecrating the third holiest shrine in Islam for years. Just this past year, they've gone in there and tear-gassed women as they as they worshiped, they beat up men inside the mosque. They beat them up. This is intolerable. If you're, a, let's say you're a Catholic, would you allow outsiders to come in and desecrate the Sistine Chapel? Would you allow that? And the answer is, hell no, you would not allow that. Whatever faith you are, you should never allow the holiest places to be desecrated by outsiders. And yet Israel has an ongoing desecration of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. It's being talked about now in Saudi Arabia. Every nation is saying, we must restore the dignity of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. Hamas did that. So say whatever you want about Hamas. There was a long reason for them to exist, a long reason for the being, but the world had forgotten about the Palestinian people. There's the Palestinian Authority. President Abbas is one of the most corrupt, revolting human beings on the planet. He has abandoned the Palestinian people. He has abandoned the Palestinian cause. Hamas revived the Palestinian people, revived Palestinian statehood, brought it back on the table. Hamas did and only Hamas. You can condemn them all you want, but I will tell you this. What they did on October 7th was not an act of terrorism. It was one of the most successful military raids in modern history. They defeated the Israeli military in a stand-up fight. They humiliated the Israeli military. They humiliated the Israeli intelligence service. And today, after luring Israel into Gaza, they're humiliating the Israeli military on a daily basis through their ongoing resistance. Um, that might be a controversial take, but it's an honest take. How do you navigate the, the fog of war propaganda? It's one of the most difficult things to do from thousands of miles away. One of the most difficult things to do. One of the reasons why I navigate it as comfortably as I do, because normally I'm pretty, look, with Russia, I know a lot about Russia. So I feel comfortable sticking my two cents in there within the framework, within the four corners of my knowledge base. From 1994 to 1998, I spent a lot of time in Israel working with the Israeli intelligence services, working with the Israeli defense force. I have intimate knowledge of how they work, how they operate, who they are, what they believe in, etc. cetera. Um, I also got great insight into the work of Yitzhak Rabin, who was assassinated. I was in Israel when he was assassinated. 
Um, I was at dinner with Israeli Defense Force officers that night when his death was announced. And uh, I participated in the mourning of a nation for this great leader who was killed. Uh, and I was in there from 1996 to 1998 as I watched Benjamin Netanyahu pervert everything that Yitzhak Rabin stood for. I know Benjamin Netanyahu. I know who he is. I know who the Likud party is. I know what they do. So when I look at Israel today, it's not as I'm looking at a stranger. I'm looking at a former friend. I used to be one of the greatest friends of Israel. During the Gulf War, like I said, I was my job was to stop Scud missiles from flying in, into Israel. Um, I did it because, not for Israel, I did it because I was ordered to do it. But what I tell Israelis is I put my life more on the line in defense of Israel than many of you. Um, and then as a weapons inspector, again, I worked with Israeli intelligence to make sure Scud missiles never again flew into Israel. Um, to give you an example of how important the, you know, this relationship was, in uh, October of 1994, when I first went over there, I went there to brief the uh, head of Israeli intelligence and um, about plans. We had operational plans for intelligence support. But uh, about the third day he comes in, he says, I, we'll, we'll talk about your work there. He said, you're the SCUD expert, right? I said, well, yeah. But remember, I'm an expert only because I'm the first person to ever do it, not because I'm a real expert. But uh, no, but I said, yeah, I, I'm, I'm the guy that's been counting scuds. And he said, OK, during the Gulf War, uh, we issued gas masks to the Israeli population. And one of the great tragedies of the Gulf War is that because they issued it so rapidly, people didn't get trained on it. And so mothers put gas masks on their children improperly and the children suffocated to death. Mothers suffocated to death. People died because of the panic that was there. Uh, he said, you know, Iraq's making a move towards Kuwait. People are starting to mobilize. We've got Patriot missiles coming back in. Um, and the prime ministers asked me, do we do we issue the gas masks? So he said, I'm asking you right now, does Iraq have the ability to strike Israel with Scud missiles? That's a huge question. It's a national security question. It's about 400 times above my pay grade. But I gave him the, I gave him the honest answer. I said, no, they don't. We've accounted for all of them. There's nothing left. You have nothing to fear from Iraq. And he stared at me for the longest time. Then he went and told the prime minister that there was no Iraqi Scud missiles to worry about. They didn't issue the gas masks. And hopefully that saved some lives um, down the road. But my, my, my point is, is, you know, I know Israel and I've worked with Israel at the highest levels. I worked with them at the ambassadorial level, the minister level. Um, and, and so I feel comfortable talking about Israel, uh, not as an expert on Hamas, not as an expert on Hezbollah, but as an expert on Israel and what Israel has become. I no longer consider Israel my friend. I will no longer support Israel, not because I'm anti-Jewish, furthest thing from it. I'm anti-Zionist. I'm anti this notion that Israel has a right to exist at the expense of the Palestinian people. If they would just leave it as Israel has a right to exist, I'm there. I'm there. I believe there needs to be a Jewish homeland. There has to be a, I'm like Albert Einstein. You know, Albert Einstein was a Zionist. But after World War II, he said, look, there needs to be a place for Jewish people to live in the Holy Land. There has to be a place for them, but not at the expense of the Palestinians and not as a separate Israeli state. It's part of a state that, uh, that, that protects the Jews, but not only Jews, protects everybody, respects everybody. That's me. I'm there. You know, I'm even willing, I mean, I can support a two-state solution, even though that's not perfect, but it's still an Israeli homeland. Israeli homeland. I'm for that. 
but I'm not for Zionism, and I'm not for the notion of an Eretz er, uh, Israel, a greater Israel that evicts everybody in the name of purely Jewish interests. You know, there's a difference between Judaism and Zionism, and people need to make sure they understand that, because to criticize Zionism does not make one anti-Semitic. Yes, if you criticize Judaism, if you say, I want to kill all Jews, you're an anti-Semite. I'm saying that I love the Jews. I'm saying that I support the Jews. I'm saying I'll defend the Jews with my life, and I've proven that. But I will not support Zionism. I will not support an Israeli state that has to be built on the backs of millions of Palestinians. Scott, you've heard over and over that the that the Muslims want to wipe Israel off the face of the map. So Israel is only defending itself. Well, there's a couple things there. Um, one, I think uh, the Muslims, <laughs> the Arabs, um, have shown over and over again that they are willing to, uh, to work with Israel on the issue of a two-state solution. Uh, and that, if Israel went that path, then that would guarantee Israeli security there. That, that, that's part of the guarantee. Um, two, when Israel transitioned from the state it was originally envisioned to be to this greater Israel of Netanyahu, of Zion, greater Zionism, um, they, they stopped being a sovereign state and they started becoming what we will call an occupying state. They're occupying Palestinian territory in violation of international law. And as the International Justice Court said in 2004 finding, talking specifically about the West Bank and Gaza and walls and stuff, the occupying power has no inherent right of self-defense against anything done by the occupier against it. So Israel has no inherent right of self-defense against the Palestinians, none whatsoever. It's an illegal occupying power. Um, the other thing, too, is that Israel, if you were going to cl claim self-defense, you have to claim it and say that we are defending that which is permitted under international law. But what Israel is trying to say today is that we get a right of self-defense for Eretz Israel, for greater Israel, that we can defend ourselves when we're seeking to evict Palestinians from the homes in the West Bank, that we can defend ourselves when we illegally occupy and annex the Golan Heights, that we can defend ourselves when we illegally occupy the Sheba farms in Lebanon, that we can defend ourselves as we illegally brutalize the citizens of Gaza and the citizens of the West Bank. There is no legitimate right of self-defense for any of that any of that. So no, Israel does not have an inherent right of self-defense, not Eretz Israel. So what's currently happening then in Gaza? Israel's getting beat. They're getting beat on every level. Now you'll say, well, Scott, I've seen videotapes of the Israeli tanks going in there and shooting up this empty building. Now so I've got videotapes of the Israeli bombs dropping down and killing 12,000 Gazan civilians. I mean, some victory that is, huh? Killing innocent civilians. Wow, the tough Israeli Air Force. They're really brave guys. They're probably going to get a lot of medals for flying over and killing women and children. They should all be hung by the neck until dead because they are war criminals. And they should be prosecuted as such. There's nothing brave or glorious about what they're doing. They know what they're doing. They know they're dropping bombs on civilians. What's worse is that America gave them the airplanes and gave them the bombs and we're letting them do it. So we are complicit in these crimes. But the Israelis right now are engaged in a battle that can't be won. And I'll tell you why. Because Benjamin Netanyahu has set the goals, the, the, the goalposts of victory is the total destruction of Hamas. But what is Hamas? Is Hamas just a bunch of guys with guns? Or is Hamas an idea? You see, the other thing that Hamas did on October 7th is take possession of the notion of Palestinian statehood. 
take possession of the notion of Palestinian dignity. Because prior to October 7th, the Palestinians were a defeated people, an occupied people, where their own Palestinian authority would not stand up and defend them. Where was the Palestinian authority when the Al-Aqsa Mosque was desecrated over and over and over again, nowhere to be seen? Where were they when they go in and take Palestinian civilians out of their homes, occupy their villages, arrest their women, arrest their children? Where was the Palestinian authority silent, not doing anything? Hamas seized the issue of Palestinian dignity, seized the issue of Palestinian statehood. They own it right now. It's theirs. You can't divorce that from the psychology of the Palestinian people. Hamas will always exist in the minds of a Palestinian as long as there's a Palestinian left on earth. Now, maybe Israel's goal is the total genocide of the Palestinians. Some Israelis claim that that's justified given what happened, but it isn't going to happen because Israel's overreaction, and this is one of Hamas's great victories, their overreaction has united the world against Israel, united the world against Israel. I believe South Africa actually had people in the streets protesting on behalf of Palestine. Washington, D.C. had 300,000. London just had 500, 600,000. It's all over the world. The world has turned against Israel because of what Hamas did. Now, let's talk about that for a second. Because what Hamas did, there's 12,000 plus dead Palestinian civilians. And let's be frank. It wouldn't have happened. I've always, I've, I've told you about the things that wouldn't have happened if, if Hamas hadn't acted. They wouldn't be talking about Palestinian state. They wouldn't be prisoner exchanges. They wouldn't be um, talking about protection of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. There wouldn't be 12,000 Palestinian civilians killed if it weren't for what Hamas did on October 7th. Let's be clear about that. Let's be absolutely clear about that. But let's also put it in perspective. You know, before the United States went into Normandy in World War II to begin the liberation of France, the estimates were that we were going to kill 80 to 120,000 French civilians. And Charles de Gaulle was approached about this. And he said, God, you guys got to, that's a high number. That's a high cost. You got to lower the cost. They said, but we can't. I mean, you know, it, it is what it is going to be a big number. And he said, then that's the price we have to pay for liberty. It's the price the French people have to be, have to pay to be freed from the tyranny of Nazi occupation. So the 12,000 Palestinian civilians are the price the Palestinian people have to pay to be freed from the tyranny of Israel, because only by their suffering, only by their perseverance, only by their resilience, will there be a Palestinian state. It could not happen if there weren't 12,000 dead. Now, Hamas did not kill them. The Israelis killed them. All Hamas did is create the conditions for the Israelis to behave as the Israelis always behave. Blind hatred, collective punishment, no notion of distinction or proportionality. All of these are war crimes. In internet, and because of these war crimes and the horrendous reality of these war crimes, the world has turned against Israel, creating the conditions for the birth of a genuine Palestinian state. But never forget the losses. The 12,000 civilians have sacrificed their lives. And most of them, not willingly, they didn't sign up for this. They didn't say, I volunteer to die for free Palestine. But I think at the end of the day, when there is a Palestinian state, the Palestinian people will reflect on this and say this was an absolute necessary evil that had to occur so we could have a state. Because if without this, nobody was talking about a Palestinian state. Nobody was talking about a Palestinian The issue of a Palestinian state was finished, done. If Israel had normalized relations with Saudi Arabia, it was all over, all over. So this was a necessary evil. Hamas created the conditions for this, 
but Israel pulled the trigger. Continuing on the theme of uh, war propaganda, this notion of babies being put in ovens and being killed and all that. Well, again, I mean, when you say what I know, I personally, you know, I used to be an on-site inspector. Remember, I wasn't necessarily an expert. I was just the first one to do it. But I did write the book about it. And I know an awful lot about how to go in and do forensic investigations. I, uh, I, I was a specialist in forensic on-site inspections. So I can guarantee you that if I were given adequate access to Israel, to the sites, that I would be able to tell you exactly what happened, who did it, whatever. And so can the Israelis. And they're not. You see, because the truth is that Hamas, when they attacked, the, the vast majority of the people that were killed on, um, that, that weren't, were non-soldiers, the vast majority of the civilians that were killed on October 7th, October 8th, were killed by the Israeli Defense Force through indiscriminate fire. We now know that the uh, helicopters, Apache helicopters, rained death and destruction down on that rave in the deserts outside of Raim. Um, the Israeli narrative prior to that were that they were slaughtered by Hamas. But now the Israelis admit that Apache, and when you look at the forensics again, get down to the burned out cars in a line, how did that happen? Hamas didn't do that. Apache helicopters did that. Um, Reem kibbutz itself, 112 civilians killed. Uh, this is where we're told that we're children in ovens, and we were told this, and we were told that, beheaded children, etc. Um, first of all, the Israelis have, back, have backed off on the beheaded children. They now say that there were no 40 dead babies. Uh, there was one baby with a head cut off, but that could have been blown off by an Israeli shell. They don't know. There's no evidence it was cut off. Um, but what we do know is that when the Israeli Defense Force moved into the kibbutz, um, they overreacted. They were on the phone. There one famous incident, the lady has talked about it. She was uh, held hostage in Rim. Uh, there were about 20 uh, Israeli hostages, about 40 uh, Hamas fighters. And uh, Hamas got them to call the Israeli forces and say, hey, we're here. Uh, don't shoot us. <laughs> uh, the Hamas guys, they want to negotiate a, an outcome here. Um, and what did the Israelis do? They opened fire. They killed all the. They killed 18 of the hostages. One lady was badly wounded. Both ladies were wounded. One badly. This lady only got shot through the leg. The lady that survived only survived because a Hamas fighter actually went in and shielded her as he came out to surrender. And he put his body in front of hers uh, to prevent the Israeli forces from shooting her while she screamed, "I'm an Israeli! I'm an Israeli!" So they they didn't kill her. Had she come out by herself, they would have slaughtered her because they killed everything. All the burned bodies were burned not by hamas hamas lit a couple tires through them in a couple buildings to smoke the people out um you can say oh well, here's scott why would they do that those idiot hamas cruel terrorists going in kibitzes on the gazan border are militarized communities each one of them has a security team a civilian security team meaning not full-time idf but they're armed trained to repulse attackers just a few months ago, each kibbutz had a 20, at least 20 Israeli soldiers permanently assigned to them. Now, when they pulled those battalions off to the West Bank, those soldiers left, but Hamas didn't know that. Hamas had intelligence that said heavily armed security teams reinforced by up to 20 Israeli soldiers living in the homes, living in the homes. Now, if Hamas goes and, hey, we're coming in, going to give you five minutes notice to mobilize, go ahead and arm yourselves, get your strong points. Okay, come in and now kill us all. That's not how it works. Surprise attack, audacity, fear, violence at the moment of attack. And that's what they did. They came in and they assaulted through because they had to assume every home was a potential strong point. And they assaulted through. And every Israeli taken hostage by the Hamas that has been released and said they were 
professional. They were courteous. I mean, they were cruel. They killed people. But once they captured you, they treated you with dignity, honor. If you're a woman, you were treated with respect. And they fed you. They gave you water. They gave you medical care. That's what Hamas does. Not the Israelis. They came in and they killed everybody. Everybody. All, almost every death that's out there about a burned body. Hamas didn't blow up those buildings. Israeli tanks blew up those buildings. You know, Israel has talked about the forensic archaeologists that have come in to find the bodies. They're finding bodies in buildings that were burned by the Israelis, not by Hamas. So let's be clear about what happened that day. The Israelis killed the civilians. But the Israelis, here's the thing the Israelis can't admit to. They can't admit that what Hamas did is beat them in a fair military fight. Because the second they say that, the people are going to start blaming them. Where, the, where, where was the IDF? Where was the intelligence? Benjamin Netanyahu is the greatest security prime minister we ever had. He failed. Where's the minister of defense? Where's the chief of staff? Where are the generals? Where are the colonels? Hold everybody accountable. So the only way that they can push through this thing is to use atrocity propaganda to get the Israeli people to be so traumatized by the crimes, the alleged crimes of Hamas, that they forgive for a moment the incompetence of their leadership. But as time goes by, the, the, the lies are starting to fall. The truth is starting to come out. And Benjamin Netanyahu is increasingly on the defensive. Just to be fair, though, when we talk about Israel, we are referring to the Israeli government. We're not talk I mean, a, a lot of Israeli citizens are opposed to this. Well, we know that because, well, first of all, you say opposed to this. We know that they're opposed to Netanyahu's government because when Netanyahu's government rewrote the Israeli basic law to redefine the, um, the, you know, the legal status of the judiciary instead of an independent branch to make it uh, part subordinate to the legislature, hundreds of thousands of Israelis went into the streets. And we know that in protest of that, and many of them said, we'll never fight and defend Benjamin Netanyahu's Israel. Um, including thousands of reservist pilots that Israel needs right now. So that's another reason why you need atrocity propaganda. So that those thousands of pilots who said, we'll never serve under Netanyahu will suddenly say, okay, but we'll do this to defend Israel. Um, but the question is, are, are those opposed to Benjamin, Net Net Benjamin Netanyahu opposed to him? Are they opposed to Zionism? Are they opposed to greater Israel? Um, because there's a difference. You, there's people who are opposed to Benjamin Netanyahu who support greater Israel, which means they support Zionism, which means they support the continued oppression of the Palestinian people. Uh, so we have to be careful about distinguishing. Just because you're opposed to Benjamin Netanyahu doesn't mean you're opposed to political Zionism. Many of the people who are critical of Benjamin Netanyahu today support greater Israel, support continued oppression of the Palestinian people. Uh, the The slim majority that Yitzhak Rabin enjoyed up until his assassination has has gone up and done away with. Uh, since from 1995 until today, we've had a gradual chipping away at rationality, at reasonableness. Um, Benjamin Netanyahu has exploited the politics of fear to make people f afraid. And if you put constant fear in the minds of people over the course of several decades, remember, 30 years has passed almost 
Um, that's, you know, how many generations of Israelis now have grown up and reached adulthood uh, knowing nothing but fear, not the hope of, ben, of Yitzhak Rabin, but the fear of Benjamin Netanyahu. And that fear has polluted their minds and has corrupted their conscience and has allowed them to believe this notion of a greater Israel as the just rewards of being an Israeli. And they have forgotten about the Palestinian people because they've been conveniently shunted aside in these open air concentration camps out of sight, out of mind. So is Israel now in a corner? Oh, yeah, they're in a huge corner. Look, I mean, I, let me wipe that smile off my face because, I mean, I'm, I'm laughing just because of the arrogance of the Israelis. It's like, guys, what did you think was going to happen? Uh, but they are in a corner. And um, it's a very dangerous situation for Israel right now, an extraordinarily dangerous situation. Because if they continue to behave with this level of arrogance and the violence attached to this arrogance, uh, this war could expand. Right now, there's a real danger that uh, Hezbollah and Israel are going to get into an honest-to-God shooting war, not this, you know, semi-war that's been going on, but one where Hezbollah will strategically defeat Israel, because Hezbollah will strategically defeat Israel. And then what is Israel going to do when confronted with that defeat? Let's never forget, too, that Israel's sitting in an arsenal of 60 to 80 nuclear bombs that are tied to a doctrine, the Samson option, which means that if we go down, I'll go down. Um there's Iran out there who's going to support Hezbollah. What happens when Iranian missiles start raining down on Israel, as they will if this war expands? What does Israel do? What does the United States do? Um, this is a war that, once it's engaged, could conceivably end with the physical destruction of Israel. The physical destruction of Israel. This is a very dangerous situation for the Israelis. Their only hope out of this is a two-state solution. And so what needs to happen is Benjamin Netanyahu has to be removed from power. His right-wing coalition dismembered, and a more moderate government comes in that will be told by the United States, you have no option but peace with your Arab neighbors, peace defined by a two-state solution that brings into play the 1967 borders, brings into play the Oslo Accords, things that you have forgotten, thrown away, erased, said we will never do must be considered now because there is no other option. Because if you don't do this, you will be destroyed as a nation. How, in your opinion, um, are guys like Xi Jinping and Putin sitting back and looking at this and observing? What do you think they're thinking? First of all, neither one of them wants this situation. I think that has to be clear. Um, both men are men who uh, are seeking global stability, not instability. It's not... Putin, who started the war in Ukraine, it was the United States. Uh, Putin didn't start the war in the between Hamas and, uh, and Israel. Is Israeli policy supported by the United States? <clears throat> Xi Jinping has shown that he is promoting peace. That's you just take a look at what he did in uh, negotiating rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia. And Xi Jinping has said for some time now that China is ready to get involved in negotiating a overall peace settlement uh, in the Middle East. And he, in fact, may be called in to do just this because the United States has lost all credibility. We used to play the role of lead negotiator, lead facilitator. But who can trust us today? Who can trust us? Nobody can trust us. I don't trust us. So why would anybody trust us? Um, but China could come in. Um, Russia could work behind the scenes with Iran, uh, indirectly pressuring Hezbollah and Syria. I think Russia and China have the potential of being the peacemakers in a, a potential Middle East uh, settlement going forward. Because China can be the truly honest broker. So, I mean, are you hopeful? <sighs> I 
I'm hopeful in this way and this way only, because the alternative is so horrible that you can't even think about it. The alternative is we're literally nuclear war, and we we just can't allow ourselves to go down that path. Um, and I'm hopeful that the United States recognizes this uh, and can put pressure on Israel in a timely fashion. I'm hopeful that China is also cognizant of these risks and is ready when the moment comes to intervene decisively, bringing all of its diplomatic tools to bear. I'm hopeful that Russia recognizes this and will likewise back China up with all of its diplomatic tools. I'm hopeful that Europe will do the right thing. And when the time comes to put the pressure on Israel to make the right decision. But the key is Israel. Israel has got to be sadly broken, broken. Now, the mechanism of breaking Israel doesn't mean that we destroy Israel, but we need to break the grip that political Zionism has on Israel right now. This notion of a God-given right to a greater Israel must be eliminated once and for all. Um, and how do we do that? It's going to require Israel to be defeated on the field of battle. That means more dead people, and this is tragic. And once you start playing the game of dead people, you can't control it. You can't say, I'm in control. No one's in control. You have to pray at that point in time. And if your hope and aspirations are derived to prayer, then you've already lost the fight. We are at a gamble right now. We are at a giant crap table, and we are putting money down on bets and praying for an outcome on the dice that statistically says isn't going to happen. So am I hopeful? I don't know. I just went to Las Vegas to put my children's college fund on, you know, even. How hopeful am I? Because it ain't 50-50 odds, buddy. It's against <laughs> me. But I'm going to roll the damn dice anyways and pray. I mean, and that's where we're at right now. We're rolling the dice and pray because this is a very, very dangerous situation. Scott, something that that baffles me is Israel is this incredibly tiny country in the Middle East. How is it possible that it demands so much international airtime? These are one of those questions you have to be very careful answering, lest you be accused of anti-Semitism. Um, and the last thing I am is anti-Semitic, but we have to be realistic here. Um, after 1967, after the Six Day War, the victory of the Six Day War, um, this 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 legend grew about the, it's sort of the romanticization of Israel. Um, you know, the, the kibbutz life, the sabras, you know, the native-born Israelis, the romance of. I mean, now the the whole issue of you know, the, the Holocaust and the immigration of the Jews became romanticized. The movie um, Exodus, you know, Leon Uris's book made into a movie, Paul Newman. I mean, man, you got Paul Newman playing the lead Jewish guy. Um, you know, so, you know, it's it's there, man. It's, it's mainstream. People are buying into it. Um, the American Jewish community suddenly falls in love with Zionism. American Jews start to go over. And the American Jewish community has always been a very tight community. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong. It's not an anti-Semitic comment, people. It's just a statement of reality. It's also been a community that promotes um, success. Promotes success. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a lot of Jewish lawyers. There's a lot of Jewish lawyers who go on to become producers in the entertainment industry. Uh, they become um, media executives. And so what you have is the, the mechanisms of manipulation of public perception 
are overwhelmingly in the hands of a American Jewish population that has romanticized Israel. And so that romanticization gets fed down to the American people. Um, and, and so the American people buy into this notion. It was a long and difficult struggle. It wasn't automatic. Uh, there used to be a huge class of people, for instance, in the military and the State Department, we called the Arabists. Uh, these were the people that had, uh, you know, before there was Israel, there was Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabian oil and Aramco and the whole British petroleum fiasco in Iran and supporting the coup against Mossadegh and oil, 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 oil. That was all it's about. And oil is an Arab business. And we were there. Our diplomacy was there. Our military was there. The whole concept of American military intervention in the Middle East did not begin with Israel, but began with defending oil. Defending oil. The war in 1991 was not about defending Israel. Israel was a pain in our ass at that time. We wish they didn't exist at that time because if they got involved, they would destroy the coalition. We were there to protect oil, oil, oil. But then this, it, you know, you, you, you have this political movement in the United States opposing Bill Clinton, the neoconservatives, um, that started to talk about a you know great America you know the, the the greater the great American century, um, and it was done by Zionists by people in Israel who were seeking to use the concept of American security and leverage it into tearing down the Arab establishment, tearing down the oil hierarchy. This is what it was all about. Um, you know, if you remember the General Clark, uh, Richard Clark. Uh, famously talked about after 9-11, a meeting he had in the Pentagon where someone said, you know, it ain't just about going into Iraq. We're going to take down seven nations, seven wide. We're taking down the oil thing. We're destroying the hierarchy of the Middle East on behalf of who? The Israelis. You see, this was the kidnapping of American foreign policy, the new American century, and all this kind of stuff. The um, I forget what they called themselves, the Project for a New American City, PNAC, I think it was. Um, but they kidnapped this, and then 9-11 comes. And, 9 and I'm not a conspiracy theorist. I believe that 14 bad guys hijacked four airplanes and did horrible things with them. Boom. That's it. Um, Iraq had nothing to do with that, though. But we go to war against Iraq. We invade Iraq against the law. I was involved in that because of weapons of mass destruction. Uh, we start to create, manufacture a case against Iran about nuclear weapons that they don't have. Uh, we started to uh, you know, try to bring down Syria. We promoted the conditions of the Arab Spring to remove these autocrats from power. Uh, we have done covert stuff to undermine the Saudis that they're not too happy about. The point is, we're trying to take over the world on behalf of Israel. Israel control. The Air, the Air American Israeli Public Affairs Committee, APAC, is a pro-Israeli lobby. It's been around for a long time, uh, but it came into its own in the 1990s. It became the thing. Uh, it Literally, they bought the American Congress. Again, not anti-Semitism, guys. Ask Ariel Sharon, a prime minister of Israel, who's openly bragged about how APAC has bought the American Congress on behalf of Israel, that he owns Congress. He bragged about it. So has Benjamin Netanyahu, openly bragged about how he owns Congress. Congress will do what he wants. And this this is where we're at today, where the Israelis, <clears throat> the pro-Israeli lobby in the United States has leveraged the romanticism of Israel by the American Jewish community who have sold that to the American people. Now we throw in a funny angle here. It's not a funny angle. It's actually a scary angle. Some of the biggest backers of Israel are Christians. Yeah, the evangelicals. Mm. Yes, Zionist Christians, the, mm. the end of dayers, book of revelations, you know, end of times, the Messiah is coming back, but the Messiah can't, can't come back unless there's a battle in Armageddon. 
And you can't have a battle in Armageddon unless there's an Israel. And so they support Israel in all of these wars because they want the biggest war possible. They want Armageddon so they can all go to heaven and leave sinners like me behind. And they've written books about it, left behind. Apparently, I'm going to be left behind because I don't buy into this crap. I don't want to die. I don't want the whole world to be destroyed because some fanatic Christians in the United States have gotten their mind that there must be an Armageddon. Therefore, we must support Israel. But so it's complicated how this is going because Christian Zionism, how do you even begin to address this one? How do you even begin to address that? I can address Zionism by saying we need to break it. But how do you break Christian Zionism? You can't. Freedom of religion, they're allowed to think what they want, but they've politicized that into appointing people in Congress who actively pursue this. We have religious fanatics in Congress today who believe in Armageddon, believe in end of days. We had a president, George W. Bush, that believed this nonsense. Now, how do you want to be the president of the United States with the finger on the button when you're sitting there going, Armageddon's a good thing? I don't want a president that thinks Armageddon's a good thing. I want a president that thinks Armageddon's the worst thing in the world. I want a president who wants a safe world for my children, their children, their children. I want the world to live forever, baby. Not everybody to go up to some notion of heaven that generates from a book of revelations written by a madman named John who was in prison and gone insane. Do you think... Israel is a vassal state of the U.S., or is the U.S. a vassal state of Israel? Again, one of those complicated questions. Um, I think that it's a... It's like any relationship. There's a two-way street. Um, I think that Israel has used the leverage it enjoys over the American body politic and the Americans um, to get America to irrationally buy into the concept. Here's the danger of Israel. The danger of Israel is that they have dressed themselves up to be the prettiest girl in the room. And America is the Marine coming home on a six, after a six-month float, and he's looking around, and there's the prettiest girl in the room, and he's going... Damn, she's looking pretty good, you know, and uh, what Israel doesn't want is for the Marine to go into the next room and open it up and see a room full of prettier girls and go, wait a minute, I don't want to have anything to do with this girl. So they've convinced the Marine to stay in the room and stare at her. And uh, it's it's that we we Israel's bought us, owns us psychologically. But that pretty girl can't stay dressed unless the Marine reaches into his wallet and starts handing her money. So she can buy the dress, she can get the hair, you know, the makeup and all this stuff. So we're paying the girl to look pretty so she can fool us into thinking she's the prettiest girl in the world. And that's the relationship between the United States and Israel. It's as shallow as the day is long. Israel does nothing for American security. At a time during the Cold War, you might be able to articulate an argument that because Israel was pro-American, pro-American in a sea of pro-Russian Arabs, that Israel helped promote America. I think that's a weak argument. I disagree with that argument. I think Israel's always been a detriment to the American security, but I also believe that Israel has a right to exist, and America, like the rest of the world, needs to defend Israel's right to exist. Not Eretz Israel, but Israel, as, config, as conceived by the United Nations in 1948. But now we've gotten to the point where it's a multilateral world. You know what's more important to the United States than Israel? South Africa. Why? Bricks. Bricks. Africa. You're one of the most important nations in the world today because South Africa is 
a major player in the African continent and a major player in the global economy as defined, not by the G7, a bunch of white guys and some Japanese throw-ins uh, up in, you know, in, in, in Washington, D.C., or the G20, which is the global south brought in, but only because the G7 invited them into. So it's like, mm. again, you're, we'll let you to the party, but it's a party that we made. BRICS ain't a G7 party. BRICS is a party where everybody came together and said, we don't want to be part of that. We're part of this, and it's getting bigger, and everybody wants to join BRICS. You guys are the popular sorority on campus now. Everybody <laughs> wants to join BRICS. You're important. If I were an American diplomat, I'd be spending all my time, all my time in South Africa, and I'd be spending no time in Israel because Israel contributes nothing to the United States, nothing. All it is is, well, Scott, they buy American weapons only with American taxpayer dollars. We give them the weapons so they can buy our, give them the money so they can buy our weapons. And then they get involved in wars that cause nothing but problems for us. Israel is a black hole for America. And look, every American diplomat around the world is now writing emergency cables back to the Secretary of State saying, we're in a lot of trouble, boss. They hate us. We've lost the Arab world for a decade, and we're losing the rest of the world. That global South that we so desperately need to retain our relevance, because you want to know why I want to come to South Africa as an American diplomat? Because I want to convince you that you guys should still like me, that I'm okay, that you can do business with me. And don't just buy into what those Chinese and Russians are telling you. We're okay, too. I, I want to spend, I want to date you guys. I want to take you on a date. I want to take you to a movie, buy you dinner. <laughs> I want to treat you with respect and, and have you guys fall in love with me, not the Chinese, not the Russians. That's what I want to do as an American diplomat. But instead, I got this, this, this nasty old girlfriend over there who's calling me up all the time, harassing me, and it's named Israel. Israel is a pain in the neck. It's destroying our credibility globally. There's nothing good about Israel today, nothing good about Israel. And that's why Israel is in a world of hurt right now. Because it's going to need friends. It's mm. going to need people who say, I will stand by you to protect you. I used to be one of those people. Look, I've said this, you know, because a lot of people listen to this program will come off thinking that I don't like Jews. That's not true. I will tell you right now, in my hometown city of Albany, there's synagogues and there's Jewish cultural centers and all that. If they ever were under attack from anybody, if anybody marched on them and tried to shut them down, tried to attack them, I'd be the first person there to defend them because that's what Americans do. These are Americans. They may be Jewish, but they're Americans. And you defend them. You defend their right for freedom. And so Israel, and this is where it's important because this is where I talk about what it really means to be an American. Our Constitution says that when the United States Senate has ratified an international treaty or agreement, it becomes the law of the land, which means that becomes part of our constitutional legal framework. We are signatories to the United Nations Charter. And under the auspices of the United Nations, the state of Israel was created. Israel, therefore, has a legal right to exist. And as an American, it's my duty and responsibility as an American, not just as a, a member of the international community, as an American to come to the defense of Israel if its security is ever threatened. It's hard to do that, though, when Israel redefines itself in a way, in an image that so far deviates from that which is envisioned in 1948 as to be unrecognizable. I can't defend that. I'm willing to defend this, but I can't defend that. And I think that's a point that much of the world is at right now. And if Israel doesn't allow the world to 
recognize and take a look and go, I know you. I know who you were. You need to be this. I can defend this. Come back. Come back to where I can defend you. If they can't do that. How can I follow you? Well, the best way to do it is um, I have a one-stop shop, uh, scottritterextra.com. Uh, is a is a website and uh, if you go there i have a sub stack um it's free of charge i mean if people want to subscribe that's up to you but it's free of charge um everything i offer is is free so i do podcasts this podcast when you send me a link i'll post it on on that all the podcasts i do but that's the place to go if you want to follow me um go to scottritterextra.com everything i write every podcast i do is is posted up there there's no paywall If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.